Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over a hundred casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void by law. Eighteen plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're listening to Stagecraft, Variety's theater podcast, bringing you in-depth interviews with the creators and stars of the hottest shows on Broadway, off-Broadway, in London, and around the country. I'm your host, Variety's theater editor, Gordon Cox. On this episode of Stagecraft, I'm talking to Ayad Akhtar, the Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright of Disgraced, whose new play is now being produced on Broadway by Lincoln Center Theater. It's called Junk, and it's about the high-stakes gambit orchestrated by one of the kings of Wall Street during the 1980s junk bond crisis. Ayad's in the studio to tell us all about it. Ayad, thanks for being here. Nice to be here, Gordon. Thanks. There's a good story about how you taught yourself the basics of the stock market. <laughs> tell it to us. Uh, my, when I first moved to New York, uh, I was 24. My dad made a deal with me that if I read the Wall Street Journal every day, he'd pay my rent. You know, he and my mom were concerned that, you know, I was reading too much poetry right. and how was I ever going to get interested in the real world? And uh, so, you know, knowing his son, the dutiful immigrant son who loved to read, uh, he made me agree to that. And I did. And I started reading the journal every day. There was a library over on Third Avenue and 27th Street that I, 29th Street that I used to go mm -hmm. to and uh, read the Wall Street Journal there every day. And I started reading Barron's and, you know, it was that time in uh, New York when it was 95. And it was uh, the beginning of that first tech bull run. So everybody was beginning to make money. And, you know, Tina Brown had just taken over The New Yorker. And profiles of Allen & Co. were sitting cheek by jowl with profiles of Mikhail Baryshnikov. So money was in the in the sort of culture circles as well. So it was kind of gave me a, something to talk about with people who actually were part of my world, too. So that got me interested in and got me and become an observer. Did you move to New York to go to film school or? No, I what? moved to New York because I had been working with Yuri Grotowski in Italy. I'd spent a year working with him and then Andre Studying Gregory. Studying acting. That's right. I saw that. Yeah. I was his assistant for a year. And then um, Andre Gregory, who had just uh, done my, uh, done Vanya on 42nd Street. And right. I had played his assistant in the movie because I was his assistant at the time. I had come, Is that true? I'm going to have to yeah. watch that again. Yeah, yeah, I'm in That's, it. You, yeah. I love that movie. I have hair. Yeah. Okay. okay. I would. <laughs> you will recognize you like, who is that very serious, skinny young man carrying chairs and standing behind Andre? So Andre had, after doing Vanya on 42nd Street, had uh, said that he wanted to start a group of, uh, a new group and wanted to have a group of older actors and younger actors like Wally and Julianne and uh, Larry Pine and then a group of younger actors and would I come to this New York? This is Wallace Shawn. And well, yeah, Julianne, Julianne Moore. Moore yeah, uh, okay, yeah. And um, 
Larry Pine, and uh, he had and a group of younger actors that he had been sort of working with, who it turned out would later become quite famous, Rain Wilson and uh, Sam Rockwell, and but you know we were all just kids at that time. And uh, would I come to New York and be a part of this group, and maybe I could be the person in charge of the younger people, and he would be the person in charge of the older people. And so I came to New York really just on that promise to start a group with Andre, only to have Andre, you know. Uh, he was he was maybe not quite as committed to the project as I had, might have hoped he would be. But what I ended up doing is start teaching workshops uh, with him. And so I started teaching acting at that time in New York, and that was why I was here. So, And so you started, I, I interrupted you, you started reading uh, the Wall Street Journal I and did. Barron's, and did you invest? Yeah, my dad would give me some money every year uh, and would, you know, encourage me to put it into the market. And so I started, you know, that's the best way to learn about money is to... How'd you do? Uh, for the first few years, I did really well, actually. I tripled. Uh, wow. I tripled. Uh, and, and then and then I made a, I made a strategic error. And, and I, the strategic error was the one that was probably the most beneficial because it really taught me about money. I don't think you really learn until you lose money what what it's all about mm. and you know that's the thing there's something about money becomes very concrete when you lose it it's not concrete when you make it because right. that feeling of abundance it's just a feeling and the feeling of loss that feels like something much more real yeah when did you decide that wall street was something you wanted to write about well you know my very first novel which was never published right. uh was about a poet working at Goldman Sachs during the, doing the databases at night. And, uh, and then, you know, I wrote this play called the invisible hand, which is basically about the markets. And right. so I've been writing about the markets for a long time. I, I knew that I wanted to write a very large play about American finance, but it wasn't really until Do you have a sense of why that was something a topic. That I, yeah. Because I think I had felt for some time that finance was becoming the dominant regime uh, not only politically and econo economically, but 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 spiritually in America, and that so much of our lives were governed by the kind of imperatives, for example, of constant urge to monetization, which has turned so many human relationships into transactions in this era. You know, all of those ultimately spiritual realities are emanating from the dominance of finance, and I think it's a story that is not told. Nobody is telling that story really. Um, you know, we have uh, wonderful stories like Billions, which celebrate the billionaire swagger and whatnot, but, but a sort of genetic, critical, insider analysis of the transformation of American, the American psyche. That's something that I, you know, wanted to start with uh, this play. Wow. It's a big, it's a big topic. Yeah. Well, got to, got to stay busy. <laughs> right. And what was there in the eighties and in the junk bond crisis that, uh, that you wanted to dig into? Well, I, I, you know, central questions in American life, like what is value? What is ownership? What is the collective? What is the individual? What is the rightful place of shareholder rights in a democracy? What does it mean for shareholders to own all of these central things, which are they are so fundamental to how our society is structured and we don't have meaningful conversations about any of these things. The mid eighties was the last time that these questions were not settled. It was still, there was still a sense that there could be another answer to some of these questions. Mid eighties, these questions were settled and now we live in an era where they're no longer alive. So I wanted to return to a time where the drama of posing these questions in, in human form 
would have would have basis. If you did it today, I think it would just feel like, oh, a bunch of sentimental people who are still worried about workers and whatnot. You know, and that's the other thing is that so often the, the, the conflict is cast as one of labor versus management. That's not actually that's not that's not the battle. That's not the conflict. The conflict is a, is an internal one that has to do with capital. It's about value and debt and and stuff that is much more abstract that's really driving the decision making. You know, labor, the loss of jobs and whatnot, that that's a symptom of something that is happening much earlier in the in the in the chain. Right. And we started to talk a little bit about this before we turn the recorder on, but there the events depicted in the play are fictionalized and are fictional and but they are loosely based on real life people and real life events. Tell us a little bit about well, um, they're, what they're that composited. Means. You know, I, I, I just simply from a sort of procedural point of view, not in any way of comparing myself or literary quality or anything like that. But I was looking at that time through the lens of Shakespearean history, where you know, the, you actually the, you the very first, if I remember correctly, monologue is about. Kings, right? That's right. Like, this is like a, a story. Play, this yeah. is a story of kings, or what passes for kings these days. Right. <laughs> <laughs> kings, then bedecked in Brooks Brothers and Brioni. Um, yeah. the The idea was to sort of. Could you do the whole play right now? Probably. Just, you know, I was sitting in the back the other night, and and a couple of people looked were watching me across the aisle. I was like, "What the hell are they watching?" The whole the whole play. They kept looking back at me. I was like, "What are they looking at?" And then at the end, they came up to me. And they said, "Are you the playwright?" I was, I said, uh, yeah. They said, well, because you were, we were watching you mouth the entire play. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even That's realize. I yeah. didn't realize I was doing it. That's funny. I was just sort of saying all the words. Right. Um, I, uh, I cut you off. Um, yeah, no, no. It's it's. So I was looking at. I, well, plays, I was yeah. looking at you know through the angle of Shakespeare in history because I felt like what Shakespeare did so well with those plays, which were such popular successes, most of them, and which were such uh, mashups of genre, and such fictionalizations of national myths which both had detail from the true to truth of those lives and also concoctions so i wanted to take that as my template and sort of build a story that would have a kind of potentially mythic reach for americans um and so yes i composited some deals that that i think still loom large in the history of finance the revlon deal and the rjr nabisco deal and some of those titans like uh, you know the nelson pelzes and ron perelmans and uh, henry kravitzes the financiers like bruce wasserstein and 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 mike milken there have been lawyers who were involved in some of these deals um ivan boski's lawyer uh, uh was there the other night and uh, another lawyer who was a lawyer on the Revlon deal and used to represent uh, Teddy Forsman, who is a part of a composite in the play. I mean, there's a composite of Trump in the play as well. You know, there's a and, and the play, I think, very much speaks to that moment in American history where value, where the where where value became this thing divorced from reality and where language and meaning were beginning to part and where the sort of beginning of all of this stuff we're now dealing with this interweave of irreality and the dominance of finance, uh, you know, where that, those, those bedfellows have, you know, have now sprung offspring. So how did you settle on a form for this kind of story? This kind of big, was it, was it the Shakespeare inspiration that really guided you? It was. And, 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 you know, if I, again, I I don't want to make the comparison to, to, to seem overweening or overly ambitious, or it's just, you know, I can't, I cannot control my preoccupations. I just have them. But Henry the fourth, uh, parts one and two is my favorite play. And, um, I, 
I am always amazed by how much I find myself in all of the portraits, in the portraits of power, in the king, in in Hal, in Falstaff, in Bardolph, in Pistol. And I wanted to, I, I took it as a challenge, is like, well, can you write a play about capital in which all the human dimension of that, not because you see the people at home with their wives and their kids, but you see them in the offices and you see the human interactions. Can you write it in a way that the audience can recognize their own selves in all of those interactions? So I, I consciously studied, uh, you know, Henry IV, Henry IV, parts one and two. And Tressler is a kind of Falstaffian figure who is a kind of bumbling bumbling king wannabe who ends up very wealthy bumbling very wealthy king wannabe who ends up sort of chickening out at the last minute and much like falstaff always seems to so there was you know there are all those parallels um with it's also we should say for people who haven't seen it it's a big it's a big show there are what 18 actors is that right there are well the company's 23 with the ensemble with the ensemble and and but yes there's 17 i think uh, speaking roles or speaking actors with 25 roles they we do double up some of those roles um so yeah i think that i always knew that i needed a big form you know i'd spent some time in london with disgraced and with the invisible hand and you know the shakespearean uh dramaturgy of uh, writers like uh, James Graham and and you know it's a very very alive form right now in in London right and they're doing these Did you see Ink? Is I haven't seen there? Ink. Yeah. No, I'm excited yeah. to see it. Uh Ink is a play about the about Murdochs. Murdochs, yeah. J- that's James Graham, right? That's James Graham? That? Yeah. Yep. yeah. And you know his last play which I loved was This House. Right. And I saw it at the Olivier and you know a thousand people you know totally engaged in a absolutely granular uh, depiction of the parliamentary process and riotously funny mm. and totally engaged was like it kind of set the bar for me i was like wow okay how to do this and then so in doing that thinking about that recognizing that all of those dramatists who are writing in that form are working from shakespeare you know in their case it's it's less self-conscious because they grow up with it you know a writer like uh, like myself or, or an american writer has to really seek it out in a different way right yeah the Stock market can be a hard thing to get your head around, which is one of the things we're talking about. How did you how did you make sure that you could tell your story without audiences eyes glazing over? Um, I well, I think that 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 that's what I'm trying to do. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, I think that uh, my my gambit was that if the human reality of a particular interaction is perfectly clear. Somebody is lying to somebody else. Somebody is behind the eight ball because they're ignoring a situation. Somebody is upset, but we don't understand why. And then we realize it's because he's an anti-Semite. If you understand all of those core motivations from scene to scene, if every scene is centered around some very simple human reality, that even if you're not into the finance part of it, you can at least follow along. Um, And then I think, you know, judicious and hopefully mostly invisible um, instances of exposition falling between active areas uh, can, uh, you know, prime the audience to understand a little bit better what's going on. Right. You mentioned a character who's an anti-Semite that it it's notable in the play that the sense of difference that these all these characters have in terms of who's Jewish, who's Cuban, who's, you know, old money Right. Um, what? Why was that important to the world of this play? Well, for two reasons. One, it's part of the history of that time. You know, the transformation of America uh, 
the you know Tom Brokaw's allegedly greatest generation you know giving way to a new generation um and and the the other part of it that 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 I think is more subtle and which is I think more central to the actual operation of it in the play is that I wanted to tell a story in which the identity politics enlisted the audience's sympathies and ultimately had nothing to do with the outcome and so you have characters who win and we've been rooting for them to win because their causes are just in accordance with our own prevailing morality today but the world is no better the world is no better a place because those people are now equal and i think it was a way to metaphorically undermine this sense of this consumptive obsession that i think we have become lost to in this country and we're not keeping our eye on the real problem so that was that's the more subtle i don't know how many people will really that will really register with but you know that's that's why you write a play <laughs> <laughs> what's your take on how identity politics has shifted in the last 30 years the how that situation you're depicting is what's what's the same and what's different specifically in your view well i think that um I don't know that that much has changed. I think that that it's 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 clear that that we are in agreement as uh, good people that folks should be allowed to be who they wish to be. I think at that era it was not so obvious. Um, I think that that you know one could say that anti-Semitism is not quite as prevalent a uh, reality on the street anymore. I, I think that's probably true, but I think that you know the rise of anti-Semitism within the larger culture over the past, I'd say, few years is you know makes that analogy perhaps less interesting. Uh, it makes it less interesting that therefore because it's not happening on Wall Street, it's still happening elsewhere. Um, again, to me, it was just it's the idea that individualism. And the expression of individualism and the celebration of individualism, no matter what its consequences, is the ultimate good in American life. I'm not sure that that serves us. I think that we have eroded something. I, I don't think we have a meaningful answer to the question of who we is anymore. What is the collective? How do we? And because we can't answer that, we don't know how to care for it. And so all we do is pursue our own ends. We pursue our own desires, and we believe that that is what it means to be American. And so the play kind of stages the, I think, you know, granular and riotous celebration of that individualism and then lands you where it lands you at the end of the play. Right. And part of that is the identity politics in the play. Right, right. I mean, you have a black character at the end of the play who's talking about, you know, investing in prisons for profit. Right, right, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yes. Right. Spoiler. Um, <laughs> and all your previous plays have included Islam as a as a subject and mm -hmm. had featured Muslim characters. Yeah. But this one doesn't. Was that a conscious decision on your part? As... Well, there was there would have been no way to. I mean, I've worked a Pakistani doctor into the show. True. Right. Um, there was no way to work, uh, you know, my community into this play because it was set at a time when we were just getting here. Um, I. You know, somebody asked me yesterday at the Lincoln Center event, you know, this seems such a departure from disgrace. I mean, what's so different? And 
I said, really, is it that different? I mean, that was Amir, my next question is how is it like your other well, work? Well, Amir is a, a mergers and acquisitions lawyer working at a boutique firm run by a couple of Jewish guys. This is who, the main character. In yeah. Who script. took yeah. over, you know, a lot of business in the mid eighties because they were the ones who knew how to do that work. So basically Amir's bosses are the guys in this play, right? You know, both disgraced and junk have anti-heroes who have dueling fealties who feel like outsiders, but who are insiders, who are working against prevailing prejudices, um, and who one uh, an audience can never figure out whether they should root for or not root for. So to me, I feel like I look at both plays and I think, well, it's just an expanded version of all of the same substratum. But I think that one of the things that it tells me is that when I put a Muslim character into a play, people think they're watching a play about somebody else not about themselves whereas now i'm writing a play in which so much of the audience thinks that maybe they're like that guy too and so now they're watching a play about themselves but it's written by this muslim guy who always used to write plays about those other people but to me those other people were never other people they were always just people that i know and these are people that i know so it's it's a tricky question because i get it i get the the gestalt sort of thing that's out there, but it's also not what I write from or where I write from. How do you feel like your experiences with faith influence you as a writer? I think, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a good question. I mean, I think that if I can be, you know, if I can tend again to the pretentious dimension, the pretentious end of the spectrum, which I flirt with often is is that I think that for me the theater at its essence is a kind of temple but 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 a temple that I that I in a way try to recreate a kind of sense of something that I experienced as a kid going to mosque or that there is something special about that space something special can happen in that space that the words that are spoken in that space carry greater meaning for our lives than words spoken elsewhere and so in a way I think faith is at the at the core of what my vision as a writer is in my desire to connect to an audience, yes, I recognize the essential that I have to entertain. I have to give pleasure, but I'm ultimately always doing that to do something else. And I think that's fundamentally faith driven in a way. And does we, that make sense? That does. It does. And we were just talking about disgraced your 2013 play, which um, won the Pulitzer. How does that, what's your take on how that influences a playwright's career? Well, you know, when I won, or, you know, I was like that locution. That was your first play, by the way, yes? Yes, it was, yeah. It's not that I've been writing for 25 years. Yes, but I know, but I granted, And you've written a novel. Yes, I've written three, only one of which had been published. (laughs) And I'd written, you know, nine screenplays. And um, I, uh, you know, I I often say that that when I had the great good fortune of winning the Pulitzer, even though that locution is is very odd to me because I wasn't running a race or I I mean, it didn't win. I just got a call one day. I actually got a call from Philip Rinaldi at Lincoln Center and said, hey, Ed, you won the 2013 Pulitzer Prize. And my response was, is this, are you, do you have that on authority? Is this, is this a a crank call? (laughs) And um, I thought to myself, well, very little good can come of this. Because either I, either I believe it, and if I believe it, that is going to kind of estrange me from my own vulnerability and my own awareness of my weaknesses that I have to keep working on to become a better writer. And that in a way, that friction and that, that anxiety is what drives my creativity. Or I could not believe it and start writing defensively to prove 
that I deserve it, in which case I would perhaps identify more strongly with the weaknesses than I need to and not trust my strengths. So I thought, well, what's the way around this? The way around this is to, is to take a huge artistic risk, is to do something, to take it as a, as a sign of encouragement to go and try it. And that was, you know, that was when I decided I'd been wanting to write a very big play about finance. And I thought, you know, now maybe because that's the, a good point. Your previous plays have been relatively small. Yeah, they're small in terms of in terms of the scope of their story, storytelling. Right. And so I thought this is maybe the time that if I write a play that's got 17 actors in it, I could actually get it produced because of this window. And so let me use it as an encouragement to try something hard. So that's, you know, as far as how it affects, you know, a career, there was an article in Variety that came out when I won and said, well, you know, let's look at what it does for a playwright's career. Well, it's not that much money. It's only $10,000. And well, you know, the last few Pulitzers, they haven't been on Broadway, so it doesn't necessarily get you to Broadway. What it does guarantee you is an obit in the New York Times. <laughs> <laughs> I will say this. People are interested in reading my work, artistic directors and and, and literary managers and whatnot. And, and that's, that's a great boon because I didn't have that before. As you mentioned, you worked on screenplays because you went to film school, which is a thing we haven't really talked about. Uh, you've also been working on a couple of television projects, as I understand it. Yeah, I'm and working on a, on a show for FX uh, right now about uh, the 80s and Hollywood and huh. the transformation of uh, the transformation of story, the storytelling business uh, because of the middleman, the lawyer, the agent, and the financier. Um, so, you know... That's, What's it called? Do you know yet? I don't have a title, and uh, and I'm deep in a new draft, so... But, but you know, if it goes well, you'll you know, hopefully hear about it. Certainly at Variety, you'll hear about it, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What is it about theater that you can't do in any of those other forms that you mentioned? What keeps you coming back to theater? And when is an idea specifically suited for theater? To me, it's about presence. And it's about the thing I said earlier with that language in the presence of others in a theater can have a heightened, almost numinous effect at its best. I have never experienced that anywhere else. I have never experienced that on a screen. Um, and I think that the sense of encounter with a performer and the audience in a space together, it can reach down deep into us into some ritual sort of almost mythic. It doesn't happen often, but it can. The possibility for that is there. You know, I think that I just love the theater so much. I love the process of theater. I love rehearsal. I love the collaboration. I love the encounter with the audience as grueling as previews are. And I, my God, it's the most grueling time in my life is, is a preview period. And especially on Broadway, when your show is in front of a thousand people a night and you got to be open hearted and any self rationalizations, any rationalizations about what you think is working, but the audience doesn't think is working is a liability. So you got to get rid of all of that and you got to be open for three and a half weeks it's just brutal. <laughs> but there's something incredibly, I don't know, renewing about it. It kind of puts you back. Whatever illusions you have about who you are and how good you are, what you think you're doing, you are forced to confront yourself in a way that I think is, is ultimately very productive. I think that's a great place for us to stop. Thank you for talking with, with us, Ed. And Thank you, uh, your new play, Junk, is uh, on stage at Lincoln Center right now. Thank you, sir.
That was Ayad Akhtar, the Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright whose newest play, Junk, is now playing at Lincoln Center Theater. Next time on StageCraft, I'll be talking to Bo Willimon, the creator of House of Cards, whose new play, The Parisian Woman, stars Uma Thurman on Broadway. Until then, see you at the theater. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.